1: The Slate Political GabFest is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 50% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for Stamps.com and get a four-week trial and a $110 bonus offer when you use the promo code GabFest. And by Texture, the mobile app that gives you full access to more than 150 of the world's most popular magazines anytime using your phone or tablet. Read Vogue, People, Esquire, Time, and hundreds more, from back issues to the one currently on the newsstand. Right now, try Texture for free at texture.com political. And by Amazon, Detective Harry Bosch is back on the new season of Amazon's original series Bosch, based on the best-selling novels by Michael Connolly. Stream the new season now on Amazon Prime Video. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for Thursday, March 24th, 2016, the patrolling and securing edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. John Dickerson of Face the Nation is here with me in our DC studio, our new new DC studio. It's not even our Old new DC, DC studio. We have another studio that we're trying out. Hello, John.
0: Hey, I like this. I like the. I I, I prefer this studio to the one across the hall. Frankly, yeah. if I must take a stand, that's yeah, my it's view.
1: More spacious. And then joining us from New Haven, where she's just she's really suffering, is Emily Bazelon. Hi, Emily.
2: Hi. I can't believe that after how mean you were about me last week, in which you baited ruth marcus which she in such a lovely way refused to take your bait and now you're starting off by insulting me it's like you're not even glad i'm back
1: have you been I on mean... the show for 10 years like what <laughs> what has the last 10 years been if not me attempting to bait you and insult you
2: true but um... uh, well i don't know maybe it was because i was listening and i wasn't actually in the room but it seemed did you like... listen to the show yeah i did it was a great did you show. listen to me bait yeah, it was a great show, but man, you were just like determined to stir was... up some trouble. And Ruth was like, why do you keep pushing for this?
1: Anyway. Whatever the opposite of fishing for compliments is, I was doing. Yes, exactly. You uh, were like, Per-per-due. how can I turn yes.
2: this into a fight? There must be a way. Come on, come on, come on.
1: On this week's Political Gabfest, we'll talk about the ghastly violence in Belgium and how the U.S. and Americans and politicians should respond to it. Then we will take the temperature of the race, what, uh, what's going on, has anything significantly shifted, is the Trump Express continuing to roll its way to Cleveland? Then the little sisters of the poor come to the Supreme Court for a ridiculous case about contraception and Obamacare. We will also, of course, have cocktail chatter, and then in Slate Plus, we'll talk about Apple versus the FBI, round three, now in 3D. If you're not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com slash GFS Plus. And also, two announcements. One isn't an announcement, but John, did you see this? That we were a clue in the New York Times mini-crossword on Wednesday? I did. Here's a question about the
0: mini-crossword. Do do you find that on your phone? Because that's that's where I now do (laughs) Do the New York Times crossword. Okay, but there's not some other paper form of it that you could get. That
1: you. Could I don't find. know if it's I in the paper. So. I don't think so it's in the paper.
2: It's one of the uh-huh. most. Um, but
1: yeah, no, I was thrilled. The clue, the specific clue was website with the Political Gabfest podcast. And if you just can't guess that, it's Slate is the answer. But <laughs> That's so <it's> kind <laughs> of you. <laughs> couldn't. People can get it. Just really? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that was exciting. Also, just to remind you, if you're going to be in Atlanta, near Atlanta, want to fly to Atlanta on April 27th, a Wednesday, we're going to do a sh- live show, our, f- our first show in Atlanta, our first show in Georgia at uh, the first Center for the Arts at 730. Please come. There's still tickets available. We really want to have a big crowd. It's going to be a super awesome moment in the political season. So there's going to be a ton to talk about. And you can get your tickets and find out more information by going to slate.com slash live. The triple bombing in Brussels this week murdered at least 30 people, 31 people, and raised Deep fears, deep, deep fears about the about various things in, particularly in Europe, about the transit back and forth uh, of ISIS fighters between Europe and the Middle East, how the Muslim communities of Europe are integrating into the continent as a whole, about uh, the flow of Syrian refugees. Belgium remains in a state of high alert. Oh, much of Europe is in high alert. Much of America is in high alert. Is this latest terrorist atrocity, which has been claimed by ISIS, going to affect the United States? Is it going to affect American politics? Emily, do you think the response so far from America has been reasonable or nutty?
2: I mean, I think the official response, the Obama administration response, seems perfectly reasonable. You know, Ted Cruz calling on um, the government to patrol and secure Muslim neighborhoods, not reasonable. Um, Donald Trump recalling for not letting in like any Muslim immigrant ever under any circumstances, also completely unreasonable. You know, there's a way in which these attacks every time play into people's fears and a really ugly set of... Um, rhetorical responses and sometimes policy responses get unleashed. I mean, it really does point up differences between the different sides, because Hillary Clinton's response was to talk about a surge in intelligence, not a surge in shutting people out of the country or treating them like prospective criminals.
1: John, uh, Trump also called for more torture, or revival of of waterboarding and other forms of uh, torture. Uh, After Paris and after San San Bernardino, Trump did seem to gain. Uh, he certainly made much rhetorical uh, fury out of those attacks and and talked about them and he's he's emphasized them over and over again. Is it your sense that he's he's planning to use the the Brussels attack again for political purposes? Uh,
0: yes. Um, <laughs> that was that an was easy. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. That's a correct answer, Thank you, Good. ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we really haven't—we've gotten worse as a system in responding to these, both because the president who responded from Cuba and then went to a baseball game in Cuba, this is a part of his larger view, so nicely sketched in Jeffrey Goldberg's piece in The Atlantic, about—and long-term view about terrorism, which is horrible— But if you overreact to each individual one, you fuel what they want, which is to create a big public worldwide terror from a a horrific, but in the scale of things, relatively small. And by scale of things, I mean small relative to a nuclear bomb going off in downtown Manhattan. And so the president's response is to not freak out every time one of these things happens. You can disagree with Donald Trump on... Uh bringing back waterboarding and on stopping muslim Muslim immigration and on you know bombing ISIS like mad, and still want a more uh emotional response from the president. Hillary Clinton's response is probably you know closer to the the middle ish or what or what people would want, but I just feel like we're getting worse and worse in in learning how to respond to these things.
1: Okay, to so John John is saying the, that the responses from both sides are unsatisfactory from the president and from the republican candidate's unsatisfactory. I, my own feeling about this is maybe that's because uh this is not really an American problem. That 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 maybe or I guess maybe it's that I think that President Obama's response is okay because I it feels to me that what is happening in Europe is terrible, and it's not that there are no that America doesn't need to think about it, but that, f- that fundamentally how these attacks are playing out and the, the nature of them is confined to Europe because of the way Muslims are integrated or not integrated into the, the scale of the Muslim population and the nature of the flow of people back and forth from the Middle East in Europe in a way that doesn't quite happen in the same way in the U.S.
2: Yes. I mean, Europe has these poor, unintegrated um, neighborhoods of Muslim people, recent Muslim Muslim refugees, and obviously has this huge tidal wave of refugees from Syria and Afghanistan and other countries that it's dealing with, and we don't. But I think it's only... Uh, this problem of ISIS terrorism is only confined to Europe until it's not anymore. It's not, you know, it seems c- completely plausible that something like this will happen here, even if we have done a much better, more thorough job of integrating Muslims into the American population. It just, It's a different situation, and yet, as we see with these incidents, it only takes a few people to create enormous mayhem. So I feel like I understand why... So many Americans feel a sense of solidarity with Brussels. And I think John is right that the president, emotionally speaking, creates a kind of vacuum um, in his quite cerebral response to these events.
1: But I actually don't. I mean, I mean, am I saying that there's no chance that there will be attacks like Brussels or Paris in the United States? No, I'm not going to soothsay in that way. I and mean, there's entirely the possibility of it but the fact is that it's much harder to get into the united states if you're if you're somebody who's coming out of having been a, in an ISIS fighter trained by ISIS somewhere it's much harder to get into the united states the muslim communities in the united states are very open they they have intense cooperation with law enforcement and there you know there's a lot of information sharing they're just not that same kind of isolation that you have in parts of europe and i just it, it doesn't feel to me that you can have that kind of hiding i mean we've had 15 years since 9-11 there's effectively not been an organized attack and i right, think that but
2: then san bernardino is the lone wolf you know san- inspired from afar example and that is also scary i'm not sure how much it matters whether it's organized or not if a lot of people die
1: well i think san bernardino is a different kind of attack and it is scary but it's not i don't think san bernardino and paris and brussels are the same those are those are organized, multiple targets, many participants, significant infrastructure of weaponry and bombing in a way that doesn't we had not had in the U.S.
2: I mean, true, but hyper-rational.
0: That's the right distinction, although they, I think some people, some of the experts see a connection between the two, which is the extent that ISIS looks like it's on the march, on the roll, operating all kinds of different places, it attracts people to that sense of momentum, which is one of the reasons that people argue for U.S. involvement. Because as you quite rightly pointed out, David, I think one of the the messages the president is trying to send and is sending more strategically is, you know, this is Europe's fight too, that the United States can't always be the one to step in and take care of these big problems. This ISIS, even though the United States is playing the largest military role in Syria and Iraq, it's a problem that all the other countries have to be involved with too and then but i think he also more to the point the the cruise and trump responses the heavy indiscriminate responses create more terrorists is the would be would be the president's view
1: right and I they think, also create they don't only create more terrorists they make americans behave in irrational fearful ways which weaken our economy Disconnect us from the world and make few, make not only make directly make more terrorists, but just generally weaken the country.
2: There was another part of this conversation this week. I'm pretty sure I'm lifting this from a piece by Dan Byman. He was pointing out this devastating irony, which is that as ISIS gets actually weaker in the territory it controls, as it starts to lose some of the force of its territorially based caliphate, there's more pressure on the group to pull off these sensational terrorist acts abroad. And that is um, dismaying.
1: One piece of the hideous rhetoric coming out from Trump in particular had to do with when he when he's talking about not allowing any Muslims into the United States, he's also essentially saying what what needs to be done is there has to be created sort of a safe zone some zone where all these refugees are are placed some which and that zone is presumably somewhere in turkey or some combination of turkey and syria and maybe iraq i don't even know but maybe that's correct isn't he on to something when he says you want to keep people as close as possible basically europe is very angry and doesn't want these refugees and so the the best thing that can happen is significant U.S. and European support for camps that are close to where the people actually came from.
2: Actually, yeah. I mean, there is a pretty good policy argument. Forget about the you know, virulent anti-immigrant aspect of this for a moment. Most immigrants um, do go to neighboring countries, not just in the Middle East, also in war-torn, conflict-ridden parts of Africa. And those countries can do a pretty good job, at least temporarily. And about half of refugees historically in the last decades have gone home so, having them close by has the advantage of making that easier. The problem is more about the people who need more permanent resettlement, and at that point, you know spreading out the burden of handling refugees and provide looking to examples like um the exodus from Vietnam after the Vietnam War, where America very successfully absorbed millions of Vietnamese people, that becomes more of the kind of semi-permanent permanent part of the equation. But in the short term, there, there is an argument for keeping people closer to home. It's just that when Trump makes it and it's wrapped in all of his xenophobic, you know, hateful sentiment, it gets hard to swallow.
1: Now a word from our first sponsor this week, which is Stamps.com. You know that nightmare scenario of realizing that it's the end of the month and you forgot to mail your rent check to your landlord? You need a stamp and you need it now? Fortunately, with Stamps.com, you'll never be in a postage emergency again. Stamps.com lets you buy and print official U.S. postage right from your desk. No more time-consuming trips to the post office. Just use your own computer and printer and get the right postage for any letter or package. Plus, Stamps.com is more powerful than a postage meter at just a fraction of the cost. Right now, sign up for Stamps.com and use promo code GABFEST for a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's Stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. Let's go to our next topic. John, we had a fairly quiet week, relatively speaking, in the campaign, although we had on the Republican side, we had two big elections, on two big votes on Tuesday. We had Utah, where Ted Cruz easily, easily, easily won caucus, and then Arizona, where Donald Trump won a strong plurality, enough to get all of the delegates from Arizona. He comes out of the week on the Republican side on track. Towards his twelve thirty-seven, he got a higher percentage of the delegates on Tuesday than he absolutely needed to continue his path forward. On the Democratic side, Bernie Sanders split with Hillary, continuing to gain delegates. So, was it was there anything that happened in the campaign this week that fundamentally altered its its uh, trajectory?
0: No. Now Trump is won in the, all these different ways. So, what's interesting is that if. If he gets the nomination, there's going to be a crack, and the a lot of Republicans are going to think this is the worst thing that ever happened to the party. And if he doesn't get to if he doesn't have the one thousand two hundred thirty seven when he gets to Cleveland, and it's somehow wrested away from him because a lot of the people at the convention won't want him to be the nominee, there will be a huge crack up. So the crack up is coming. It's just a question of which kind.
1: The, isn't it also the case, John, that? Cruz has done relatively well in caucuses, mm-hmm. and that we're now done with caucuses. That's right. Yes, Utah that's such was the a, last caucus. Such an important point.
0: Yes, that's right. And so that's another reason. Um, you know, the coalescing the anti-Trump movement is just has a kind of flaccidity to it. If the big news that came out of this week was that Jeb Bush is endorsing Ted Cruz, that's not that's, that's not, not a sign do it, you of the anti-Trump forces. <laughs> Yeah, and I th- there's a uh, quote that I'm going to steal from Whistle Stop. Uh, so is... I'm about. To, I wanted. To <laughs> just, oh, all right, I go was going to give it.
1: To, no, go, it's such a great quote. You, the Nixon it. quote. The Nixon yeah. quote. Yeah. When,
0: so N- Nixon, who was against Goldwater in 1964, um, but then kind of got to yes on Goldwater in time, uh, told Pat Buchanan. Subsequent to that, he said, "Anytime there is a stop X movement, put all your money on X because." <laughs> If there's somebody doing well enough to have people come up with a with a movement to try to stop them, it means they're doing well with the grassroots and the passion of the party, and that's the side you always want to be on because in time that's the side that will win. That's kind of where it feels like things are, and if you want a, a person to watch – and he's been in this mode for a long time, but Newt – former House Speaker Newt Gingrich is – in everything he has said for the last, I mean, I interviewed him, I don't know, like four months ago, and he was already, you could see him already leaving his options open on the Trump front, putting the best gloss on things that Trump had done, making the, the kind of case to shoehorn Trump into a more, basically trying to shoehorn Trump into the Republican story. And that's the guy to watch if you want to see how Trump becomes normalized Uh, or how there's a greater sense of acceptance among Republicans who who are going to very likely have to deal
1: with the fact that he's going to be the party nominee. Emily, given the Kasich's very weak performances this week, should there be more pressure on him to drop? And and do you think there's any chance he will drop?
2: He seems so oblivious to the calls to drop out. I suppose the reason is that his donor base, to the extent it, it exists, is still behind him, and he doesn't... Why is it, John? Why doesn't this kind of establish Because
1: he believes the country might be destroyed because the other two candidates for his party's nomination are lunatics? Wait, right. I see maybe the that. conviction. Maybe the I, well, I think
2: it's the pragmatic part of it I don't quite get. Like, just the way... I, I Maybe it's because I'm so sub- subject myself to peer pressure. He just doesn't seem to Yeah.
0: I mean he does he has two principal reasons he wants to say, and one he really thinks he could would be the better president and I mean if you were you know you go back to the looking at whether the people who are running for the job have any of the skills that are associated with the job, and he clearly is the hands down uh winner in that category i mean he has a different all different kinds of experiences he has operated in different levels of government um So there's that. And then the second is that he does poll better in the general election against Hillary Clinton than the other two do. Now, we know that that's crazy to think about polls this far out and so forth. But some people in politics do look at those head-to-head matchups, and he does do better against her. But what Lindsey Graham pointed out uh, last week on Face Nation, which was uh, another example of, by by the way, the sort of tepid endorsement. I mean, he's supporting Cruz, but it's such a head-snapping turn from when he said that the difference between, or if you had to choose between Cruz and Trump would be the difference between getting,
1: or a choice between getting shot and poisoned. Um, I still think that's one
2: of the better lines of the whole campaign season. Do you
1: guys get any sense whether there are any developments in the non, the anti-Trump wing of the Republican Party about how they're actually going to behave? So
2: now you're jumping beyond Cleveland?
1: I'm jumping to if suppose Trump secures the nomination there are all these people who have been trying to stop him. Are they going to get religion and get right the way a Newt Gingrich has or is is heading towards or Chris Christie already has. What interests or, me is the
2: money. Like the big donors, the, you know, the Koch brothers, their network. Are they gonna essentially sit out this presidential election and put All of their funds into state and local elections see this one as a wash and invest more in the longer-term future of the Republican Party assuming that it will be um, rescued from Trump and recover eventually or are they really going to you know try to defeat the Hillary Clinton if she is the Democratic
0: nominee it's a fascinating I think the the a lot of the money goes to two different things one local races where it's been going for a long time because everything in Washington is frozen. I think it also goes to a—and what's the analogy here? What's the—I think it goes to basically hazmat suits for candidates running on the Republican ticket in, in the age of Donald Trump. Ken Keating, who was running for Republican senator against Bobby Kennedy in New York when Goldwater was on the ticket, um, threatened to become an independent instead of running as a Republican, because they thought Goldwater would be so toxic. This is after Goldwater didn't vote for the Civil Rights Act, Keating running in New York. So, so the money would go to trying to prop up those vulnerable Republicans running in uh, purple states. And this could be where the really fascinating political maneuvering goes on, because you could argue, Mitch McConnell has argued privately, that at some point, even Republicans might run and argue that Trump is such a toxic candidate. He's going to lose for sure in the general election. And remember, like toxic not only because he's highly unpopular, but he's deeply unpopular with women. And he's deeply unpopular with women against li- the likely Democratic nominee who would be possibly the first woman who to be president. So you have a kind of... And, and just sorry, I go down this lane a little bit more. Newt Gingrich, in his defense of, of Trump, makes a plausible case, which is, you know, uh, Ronald Reagan was down by uh, a big margin to um, Jimmy Carter in the polls. Uh, That's true. But if you line up all the things Donald Trump has said about women in his casual and thorough and ongoing He retweeted a picture of Heidi Cruz next to a picture of his own wife and said something like – there was this stupid argument, which thank God we haven't talked about, uh, where Trump and Cruz were attacking each other on their wives this week. That kind of thing is is going to be very difficult for w- women to stomach uh, with him as a general election
1: candidate. So can I can I just pause you and you'll finish? It. There's a tremendous piece by Frank For in the Slate this week, which which goes through Trump and women in this absolutely shocking way. The, the kinds of things that he said over the years, the way he said them, the way he treated treats women, the way he treated contestants in his pageants. It's it, it's pretty appalling. I recommend it.
0: Yeah, these not these are not onesies and twosies. This is a long pattern of- Only tens of yeah. Donald Trump. And so that's going to be very difficult for him to overcome, but- really bad and tough for these candidates who are running in these states. I mean, it's even going to be tough for his vice president. Either reporters ask all these candidates, you know, Ron Johnson running for uh, Senate in Wisconsin, do you agree with what Donald Trump says about women on this and this and this and this case? And maybe the the journalists will not be able to keep asking that question, but there will be trackers and there will be people basically bombing all the Republican candidates with the most grotesque things that Trump has said as a private citizen. And while Trump has an ability to maneuver out of those things with the hasn't hurt him yet at all, in fact, has helped him in the Republican primary, would be much more difficult for politicians who who don't have those skills to deal in the general. So back to your point, Emily, a lot of their money will be spent trying to keep those guys alive. Because if the Senate goes as well as the presidency, then your Supreme Court is going to be chock-a-block full of liberal justices. (laughs)
2: You're really betting on some retirements. You've, like, kicked Anthony Kennedy out the door. Well, I
0: mean, think about it. Four years. How old will the four oldest justices be in 2021?
2: Yeah, 80s. 2021, that's, yeah, yeah. They'll, they'll Kennedy, Breyer, Ginsburg.
1: Kennedy and Breyer and Ginsburg, presumably, are the next to drop out. Right. But-
2: well, if but if John's right. I mean, if you assume that we already have an opening, so there's that. Um, seat. And then, if you assume that Kennedy retires in the next four years, even if Ginsburg and Breyer are being replaced by a Democrat is just a one to one, that would still be a massive shift.
1: Now, let's hear from our next sponsor this week, which is Texture. Even though I don't live in New York City, I really love reading New York Magazine. It's smart, the magazine is incredibly well laid out, there's always great packaging, great editing, fantastic writers. And luckily for me, I can always get the latest edition of New York Magazine right on my phone thanks to Texture. The Texture app lets you tap into the world's most popular magazines anytime, anywhere, using your smartphone or tablet. You can breeze through hundreds of your favorite magazines, including Back Issues, and pick the articles that interest you the most. Texture has made it easy to find articles you care about. I don't just get to read New York or National Geographic. The Texture editorial team recommends content for me every day. Plus, I can dive deeper with personalized collections. Sign up for Texture right now and gain insider access to all the content from the world's best publications. The best part? Texture is offering our listeners a free trial right now when you go to texture.com political. You'll gain immediate entry to all of the top magazines, including back issues and bonus video content. Try Texture for free right now when you go to texture.com slash political. That's texture.com slash political. The fiercely divided eight justices of the Supreme Court heard arguments in the ridiculous case of Zubik versus Burwell this week, or as you might want to call it, Little Sisters of the Poor versus Common Sense. This is one of those (laughs) you-must-be-fucking-kidding-me cases, Emily, It's yet another deranged sideways challenge to parts of Obamacare. Tell us about it um, and tell us about the Little Sisters of the Poor involvement in it, too, because they're just colorful.
2: Well, I'm interested that you have so thoroughly made up your mind. I know, really? You're shocked Um, about that? but
0: David,
1: (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm known, I'm famous for my judicious uh, temperament.
2: (laughs) I mean, okay, so... Go back a moment to um, Hobby Lobby, a case our listeners may remember, which was about, you know, whether corporations had a uh, um, religious freedom reason to opt out of the contraceptive mandate, the idea of providing birth control through health insurance to their employees under Obamacare. At the time, there were some conservative, respected justices, Justice Alito, Justice Kennedy, who said, yes, corporations can opt out, and here's why we know they can. The government has already allowed religious organizations to opt out, and look, they're doing it in this way that we're going to praise. They didn't say it was legal, they weren't doing a whole legal analysis, but they were going out of their way to offer this seemingly as an alternative. There were two kinds of alternatives they were talking about. One is for churches, you know, places of worship, which get to straight up just opt out. They don't have to do anything. They just don't have to offer healthcare plans that provide for birth control. Then if you're a religiously affiliated organization, a school, um, a social services group like Little Sisters of the Poor, you have to fill out a two page form or send in a letter. And, you know, the reason for this is that there are more of those kinds of organizations. So they have more employees who could be affected. And also it's less obvious that um, they would necessarily qualify. And so the government, for, you know, reasons of, like, administration really, created this form. So now this form, this idea of signing Ta- the wait, form Wait, time out, is- Emily.
1: Time out. It's not just that there's a form. Then there's also some segregated funds. So, so if you're an employee of a church which has opted out— you do not have the ability to get contraception covered under your plan correct it
2: has some complicated relation like a third party relationship to your health insurance but it's off to the side it's not something your employer is um subsidizing
1: but it is available to you. it's available to you
2: it is available to you and so the the argument that little sisters of the poor and these other religious organizations are making is that simply by signing this form by opening a path to this alternative means of securing health insurance that covers birth control, they are um, violating their own religious beliefs, and this is a substantial burden on their sincerely held religious beliefs. That's the test in the law, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which Congress passed in the 1990s. And so that's the question here. Is this just like an administrative necessity um, that, you know, you have to raise your hand and turn in a form in order to be an organization that qualifies for this work around in Obamacare? Or should you just be able to have your employees not be covered, not have anything to do with whatever the government does? You know, maybe the government can come up with another way of covering those employees. Um, but it would just have zero to do with your own actions.
1: They, the, L- Little citizens of the poor effectively and the, the the other plaintiffs want to be treated as though they are churches that they can fully opt out.
0: Right, which is not crazy. They are an organization that is based on their faith. They are in, They are driven and defined by their faith. So if there is a lane already with an exemption or an accommodation for religious employers like a church – it's not crazy for them to say,
1: why not just treat us like that too?
2: Right. I also agree that's not crazy. It has
1: huge implications yeah. for the health of employees who and, and these are large these religious these are religious organizations, but they are providing services that are that are secular services. They're providing services which are healthcare services, educational services to broad swath of people and they have broad swaths of employees and they have many women of reproductive age in there. And the government has decided that the health, reproductive health of women in the United States is is benefited by having access to contraception and has, has mandated this as a sort of universal availability. And so you, presumably there's a strong, strong, strong government interest in there being contraceptive availability to these women. And you should be very careful about imposing any constraints on that and where right, do you start to they- constrain, impose those constraints.
2: But the government has allowed small bites to be taken out of that protection and that coverage. And so then you have this question of, okay, well, why not this medium-sized bite?
1: Well, the most important point this points out, again, I have said this 100 times on the show, I have to say it again, is the insanity of employer-provided health insurance. It is insane that my employer is making moral decisions about my health care, moral decisions that have nothing to do with my health. We've set up entire extra idiotic layers of, bureaucracy and paperwork so that an employer can mediate between you and, and an insurer. It makes no sense at all. As, as an employer, like I've now witnessed this firsthand, I essentially pay $2,000 per employee per year, simply for the, not not even talking about the employee premiums, but simply as, as, as to get someone to act as this intermediary. I mean, it's just a, it's enormous frictional cost on the American public that is idiotic, should not be born. It's a unbelievably stupid system. And, and it's a stupid system because it imposes bureaucratic costs and it's a stupid system because it allows your employer to have to be able to to weigh in on your health care in ways that your employer has nothing to do with. It doesn't it is not relevant. You know, if the if the nuns who are employees of Little Sisters of the Poor do not want to avail themselves of contraception then say to all the employees who work for them who are women who you know may need contraception like we've decided you can't have it because of 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 what kind of organization we are it makes absolutely no sense to me it is like it is it is it is one of the bizarrest aspects of american life anyway that is my rant about it but the where you draw the line in religious organizations
0: is not a you know this is a problem you would be running into. I mean yes, it's uh,
1: everything you say is. I think it's stupid. The churches have an exemption, frankly, but that's you know. Well, but it's, there's it's, a, it's a huge lost cause.
0: I mean, there's a huge protection for religious practice in the Constitution. That is what is what's when you talked about you know the government had decided this is a, would be a good thing for everybody to be covered in uh, to, but,
1: the whole I, point of the Constitution. But John, is per- this
2: isn't actually a constitutional case. Also, no, but also, a, there's but, no constitutional well, claim in this case. That's the ship's sail.
1: No, I know this case no, isn't, I, but no, but John no, saying, saying the, larger kind point, constitutional the larger, of constitutional yeah, undergirding
0: it. Yeah, the, the larger point we're discussing is not the narrow uh, bureaucratic decision that HHS made about what to cover and what not to cover, which is what 's what this is about, but the larger point david 's making, which is that the government has decided there's a large interest here in getting people covered, and that large interest is trampling potentially trampling on something that the Constitution does protect, which is the free. Uh, exercise but, of your religion. Yeah, but that's see what I don't what I do not, that's not I not know
2: how we've ever, how the Supreme Court has interpreted free exercise. Like that's the reason for Rifra for the religious freedom restoration act which is that the court in an opinion by Justice Scalia said no to this line of constitutional thinking. So actually, I mean, I know um, maybe I'm sounding annoyingly lawyerly, but it it, it is Always. a narrower question. The Right, but but,
0: but the always. but the but the way that the little sisters of the poor see it, they don't see this as an infringement on their ability to practice their religion.
2: Yeah, no, they do. I'm just saying that they're only legally speaking. And
0: isn't that a constitutionally protected? Well, thing? not if
2: the Supreme Court says it's not. Right. I mean, you can try to like relitigate that, and essentially through RIFRA, they are, and they have, and but but this this test that we're talking about, whether there's a substantial burden on religious freedom versus a compelling government interest, that comes from a congressional statute. It also happens to be an old Supreme Court test, but it got then rejected by the Supreme Court and Congress reinstated it. So you yes, it has constitutional underpinnings. It's just not a constitutional case.
1: Whether it's constitutional or, or whether it's a constitutional or statutory issue, it seems to me like totally... Insane that even for a church like the private healthcare decisions made by employees of a church have nothing to do with religious practice like like the the church the church can by all means like that the employees of the church can choose for moral reasons to say like I am not going to to avail myself of contraception a delivery mechanism for for ensuring that we have a public that's healthy. Has does not, like, impact how you practice your religion. It does not—no well, one's being compelled to get contraceptive coverage.
0: But the people who practice their religion think it does, and therefore, since they're the arbiters of how they— But that's but, a, What they believe. But, but you're but, saying yeah, but their I'm religion saying that, is stupid, not— No,
1: I'm saying that the idea that we say that just because somebody says it's my sincerely held belief that this now implicates my religion, that doesn't mean it's actually that we should privilege it. It doesn't mean that we should privilege it. Like, just because you say— Oh, this affects thought, me. But I thought we do do that. I, I we mean, shouldn't. I think we shouldn't. Well. I think it's. I think it's a ludicrous to privilege that. Like, if someone is preventing you from worshiping and and praying in, in a fashion, like, okay, I can I can understand that as an argument. But if you're talking about the the private behavior of someone who's not you, like, I don't see how that how that could possibly impact your free exercise of religion. I mean, like,
2: I, I don't see
1: it. I just don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense to me. I don't uh, get Arguably,
2: Rifra, the law issue here, is trying for the kind of balancing that maybe you're both talking about. I don't know. Maybe I'm being too fond of compromise here. But, you know, when you think of this, the compelling interest part of the test, the government's compelling interest, we have all this evidence about the health benefits for women of – Lowering barriers to contraception, like total home run in the research. The other thing that drives me crazy about this is the claim that certain forms of birth control, like the IUD, are actually causing abortion, which is another thing that is like just scientifically contested is—I mean, I want to say nonsensical. It's almost nonsensical.
0: Well, unless you decide to define it as conception, in which case— No, even then. I mean, right? even
2: then, you're talking about, like, pre—an effect— I mean, we don't entirely know how the IUD works. That's, like, the one tiny question mark in here. But all the indications are that the IUD works pre-implantation, which means that—oh, uh, it just—I mean— Right, no, I
0: know, but where the way, the place they define it, those who, if you were defining it at conception, then, like, basically anything you do is...
2: Well, right, but then it's, like, becomes this is, ad absurdum argument. But like, that's their
0: def, <sighs> Right, right, but I'm just saying it's their definition. Like, that, that's why that, de- if you define it at conception, isn't science irrelevant?
2: I mean, I, then I start feeling like we're having a conversation about all birth control, or, like, the decision not to have sex in the first place. It just, like, takes you back to some... Yeah. Well, I what? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Some people believe. I mean, you know,
0: well, whether it makes sense or not, that's what some people believe. When
2: this case divides four to four, which is likely what's going to happen when the decision comes down in June, there will be an opinion that says there is a clear, compelling government interest in providing this contraception. It doesn't matter that the government has allowed uh, exceptions for churches or employers with small numbers of employees we don't care it's up to the government to decide where the line is they drew it good enough and they will also say it's not a substantial burden on religious organizations to fill out this form the other side of the argument is what Paul Clement the lawyer for little sisters of the poor said at argument which is that this is not being a conscientious objector right it's not saying like I can't be drafted It's being a conscientious collaborator that that by signing this form, you're setting into motion the series of events through some third party health insurance that maybe it's attenuated, but it's still you are instigating it. And so the government is forcing religious organizations to violate their religious beliefs in the way that John is saying that is going to be the divide here.
1: And that's why they should be forced to j- just to be compelled to to carry the same insurance that everyone else does. And nobody opts out and you're not being a conscientious collaborator. You're just like participating in the healthcare system. Well, that's what if the Supreme Court it.
2: flips it's, over in the way that, you know, we were just talking about in uh, our last discussion, <laughs> then I think that that view would prevail. But at the moment, um, you know, religious liberty is this very um, useful tool for the conservative justices to... Um, Continue to kind of, you know, stick holes. Protect into what they Obama think is Care. a
0: fundamental part of the American
1: experience.
2: Yeah, both of those things. It has <laughs> nice, it has nicely, a lot of utility. Par-
1: nice parenthetical, John Dickerson. I like that. <laughs> uh, okay, let's 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 end on that on that lovely Dickersonian pin. <laughs> and now let's hear from our other sponsor this week. Amazon's original series Bosch returns for an all new season. Bosch is based on Michael Connolly's best-selling novels. Harry Bosch, the tenacious LAPD homicide detective, is back on the job after an involuntary leave of absence. His first case back may prove his biggest challenge yet as he follows a dangerous trail of corruption and collusion, one that uncovers the dark side of the police department and threatens Bosch's relentless pursuit of truth. Stream the new season of Bosch now on Amazon Prime Video. And listen to the companion podcast, A Fine Mist of Blood, on SoundCloud or Stitcher. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're you're relaxing on the beach where you're relaxing, neither of you is relaxing on a beach this week, but both of you have been on a beach, what will you be chattering about? Uh, Emily?
2: I really have enjoyed visiting the state of North Carolina in my life, and so I am sorry to bash the state of North Carolina, but... They just passed this sweeping bill that eliminates protections for LGBTQ people in all kinds of areas of public accommodations. And they passed it basically using this wedge issue of access of transgender people to public bathrooms. And I just am agape. I mean, we saw this happen with this ordinance in Houston last year so. I guess it's not that surprising that there is this backlash against transgender rights. I guess I already knew that. And yet I've been thinking about this in comparison to the laws, the religious freedom laws in uh, Indiana and Arkansas that initially passed last summer, and then there was just this wave of public condemnation, all these calls for boycotts by companies, people were pulling out of the states, and the states back down. This bill that North Carolina just passed is much broader and worse than what Indiana and Arkansas did. And it's just really sad to me that this completely, I mean, this is really ridiculous, this idea that it's important to transgender people out of the bathroom. It's just fear-mongering. North Carolina legislature, shame on you.
1: J.D., what's your chatter?
0: Um, My chatter, this is another in a long series of me discovering things that probably everybody else knew. But um, in doing some reading about uh, the election of 1800 and the partisan press at the time, I was struck by how familiar the... Savaging of political opponents uh, of each other is to today's Twitter flame wars. I mean, we think about how ugly this current election has become. And I guess I never knew that, for example, Thomas Jefferson, while he was a member of Washington's administration, in his battles with Hamilton, essentially set up a newspaper and funded that newspaper to print constant assaults on the administration for which he worked. I mean, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> that that I mean, relative to what we think about as bad behavior today, and these weren't just kind of like oblique throwing of shade. I mean, this was like character questioning, motive questioning, assaults on Washington and on Hamilton. And it got so bad, we think now that it's bad for newspapers to print you know, anonymous sources saying things. All the all the founders did was write anonymous letters under other people's names, attacking and savaging their opponents. I mean, now, so I guess the point is that when we think about the founders and the notion that that this, this was this enlightened circle of men who weighed the uh, business of state, and, and they were savages. They were total. They were just the worst Twitter trolls, basically, that we would think of today. They just you know, wore powdered wigs. There is this moment when basically Hamilton is so upset. He writes to Washington and he says, can Jefferson reconcile it to his own personal dignity and the principles of probity to hold an office under the government and employ the means of official influence in opposition? Which means how does he hold a government office, and then also pay for this newspaper to attack it. And basically, Jefferson writes a 4,000-word response to Washington, who calls him out and says, stop doing this, stop funding this newspaper to attack my administration. He writes a 4,000-word response about how he's not involved at all, which is a total lie, like a total and complete lie. Anyway, I I guess I just didn't know how thoroughly— he was involved, and they—they they both were. I mean, Hamilton was doing his own version of things too. He, Hamilton essentially writes a letter that that dooms John Adams, who's a member of his same party. Which, by the way, when you think about people trying to ad- eject the leaders of their party, ejecting Adams was not unlike, you know, the attempts to eject Goldwater or Trump. It's just kind of amazing how thorough this was a part of what they did, and how familiar it is to our own.
1: In fact, it's patty cake today relative to what they did. There are great bits in the, the turnout biography, actually. There's long segments about this anonymous give and take and the, the publication setup.
0: I mean, things. they basically all they did was spend all their time writing in the comments section of exactly. each other's. Exactly. Uh, and yeah.
1: I want to chatter today. It's, it's going to be log rolling, but this is like the my favorite chatter of the year, okay? Atlas Obscura, the media organization that I run does something wonderful every year called Obscura Day. On one day a year, this year it's Saturday, April 16th, so about three weeks away, all over the world we put on adventures, excursions, tours. There'll be more than 150 of them this year. We'll be in 35 states, 25 countries. And the whole idea is for you to get all our users, to get all GabFest listeners out and exploring the world. Like the idea, realize that wherever you are in the world, there's something amazing around the corner from you. So I want to encourage you to come join me and join Atlas Obscura. Last year, we had about 4,000 people who took part. This year, I hope there'll be even more, and I hope there'll be lots of GabFest listeners. In D.C., I'll be leading an expedition I led last year. We're going to go to this uh, abandoned Civil War fort in Rock Creek Park. If you're in Italy, there's a we're going to a secret uh, subterranean temple in Kansas City. There's gonna you can go to plasma experiments at the Princeton Plasma Physics Lab. If you're in Nevada, there's a tour of Molossia, which is the world's smallest sovereign re- sovereign republic, and you can meet with its president. If you're in New York, we're gonna have a garden party at a hidden cemetery in the East Village. There's gonna be a walking tour of Coney Island Creek. There's a taxi, you can do taxidermy if you're out in Los Angeles. Go to atlasobscura.com slash Obscura Day, Saturday, April 16th. It's going to be really amazing and fun. It's this chance to, to have an adventure, like a micro-adventure, and, and to meet people doing it and... I had an amazing time last year when, when I did it. So I really hope you'll join me. And John and Emily, I hope you guys join me too. The posts, the social out. media
2: posts from last year were so great. People were just super, super into it. Um it's yeah, really
1: yeah. it's really fun. That does it for our show this week. Our intern is L. Biscard Church. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer. A Panoply, we are, of course, part of the Panoply Network. And all the Panoply podcasts are at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Do you guys see they redid the iTunes rankings? Hannah was showing me this. There's all these weird podcasts that are now at the top of iTunes. How'd they redo it? It's so them? strange. There's, I don't understand it. It's it's just like there's no This American Life at the top. It's it's Lutheran. It's like Lutheran Listening is the number one podcast. Wow. And then there's some Mickey Mouse podcast, some podcast about Disney. It's so funny. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest. And our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. Email us at GabFest at Slate.com. Please join us at our Atlanta live show on April 27th. Go to Slate.com slash live for tickets. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week.
2: With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.